When you have a busy afternoon but also have an appetite for adventurous new recipes, try Blue Apron's heat and eat meals that offer quick and simple meals without sacrificing fresh and quality ingredients. With 60-plus options each week, you can choose from an ever-changing mix of high-quality meat, fish, vegetarian, WW-recommended, and wellness offerings. Get $130 off across your first six boxes. Plus, your first box ships free when you visit blueapron.com slash blueculinary. Mouth Off is a podcast brought to you by Forget Me Not Productions. My name is Clary Sadler, a former actor, musician, and teacher turned inclusive arts practitioner. Each podcast you'll hear empowering interviews by, about, or for marginalized groups. This week we'll be talking to Steve Evans, pastor, iconoclast, blogger, wannabe novelist, and public speaker. Steve likes to stir things up by asking controversial questions about gender, the Bible and homosexuality, privilege, spirituality, and Star Trek. Hi Steve, thanks for joining us today. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what it is you do? Hi Clary, so pleased to be invited on your show, thank you so much. A little bit about myself, I'm Steve, I've been married to my wife Louise now for over 20 years. I want to say 23, but I'm afraid I've got it wrong, and then she'll probably skin me. Um, we live in Triago. I run a small church in Williamstown. It's an absolutely gorgeous day today, so I've got the window open, so I do apologise, you might hear a little bit of traffic. Not an awful lot, because right now we're in the middle of a lockdown, which, hey, isn't this weird? I can't get over it. My Strava's going wild because I'm walking everywhere because nowhere's open, so I just take a stroll every evening. We're living in really strange times. It's odd for me, especially this week. I was thinking of this already. Um, I'm recording this on Monday, Thursday, which is traditionally um, the instigation of the Last Supper, and the church comes together and we break bread together, and... Yeah, I can't do that this year, so I'm feeling a bit of a, at a loss. So you're asking me to describe myself, and I really feel like a fish out of water. I've lost a huge part of my identity due to this. I can't go out, I can't sit with people, I can't listen to them and counsel them and and just sit with them and love them. It's, it's an odd time, but I think we can all agree with that. I hope that uh, gives you a little bit of insight as to who I am. So Steve, I recently read your blog and was particularly drawn to one entitled You're Only Feminist Because It's Cool. The title is in reference to yourself, I believe. Could you break that down for the listeners? How does that work exactly with you being a man and a feminist? Yeah, you're only feminist because it's cool. Somebody said that to me once and I thought... Do they imagine kids hanging around street corners being really cool discussing feminism? It, it, it baffles me. What next? Are they discussing, you know, the rise of uh, neo-capitalism? And, and no, no, I, I, I don't think it's cool to be a feminist. I am feminist because I was raised by a single mum. I was raised between my mother and my gran, and I saw the amazing work they did and the amazing love they gave, and I don't really know any other way other than to respect what I've seen, to respect my own experience. Am I a feminist, though? This is always the big question. For me, feminism goes beyond gender. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but feminism is indicating who has been left out of the conversation and giving them the larger platform, which... I know that's what a lot of men's rights activists get up in arms over, saying, well, 
if you want equality, why should you give, be given the loud advice? The reason they need to be given the loud advice is because women have been silenced for so, so long. We need to hear these stories. I'm going to come back to the stories again, and I use stories a lot. My own story is I have seen how amazing women are. I've seen the amazing work they can do. I've listened to what I've been taught, from what I've experienced. I can't put that genie back in the bottle. I can't put all that experience back in the box and pretend that it didn't happen just because some men can't see that. It isn't just women that need the platform. It isn't just women that need the podium. I do have some issues with feminism only in as much that it seems to be very white middle class centric. I think the term is very important because it does deal with the silenced women. There are other silenced voices too. I love the quote by Alice Walker when she says, feminism is to womanism as lilac is to the colour purple, because purple is much deeper and much richer. And she's talking about how womanism deals with another unheard voice, that of black, predominantly African extract, those in the States. But it goes much, much deeper than that. Like I said, it is deeper and richer. That isn't a middle-class aspirational movement, and it doesn't get featured as much as feminism does, which is ironic. And I know there's a lot of issues there. Feminism is very white West, and I get that. For me, feminism goes even deeper again, like I said, than gender, than race. The unheard voices we have at the moment, who is speaking for our planet? We have extracted everything we need from this planet and we have left it in a state. Who's speaking for our animals? I know for myself this notion of you listen to the voice that is being silenced. My wife says I'm a, I'm a very bad vegan. I call myself plant-focused or plant-based because 99.9% of what I eat is plant-based. <laughs> the one sticking point I have is my mother, who I say to her, I'm a vegan, I don't eat meat, eggs, or dairy. And she says, well, do you want an omelette? And I'm like, no, because I don't eat meat, eggs, or dairy. And she says, well, there's no meat in it. And in the end, I'm like, oh, ma'am, you're 70 years old. Yes, go for it. That's what my wife accuses me of being a very bad vegan. I do think we need to listen to these voices which have traditionally been silenced because I think it makes the world a much, much better place. Our Bible starts with an act of creation. God made man, God made woman, God made creatures, God made the seas and the mountains, and God said, this is good. Man isn't superior it offends me that people think that just because what is between somebody's legs makes them more intelligent, makes them more deserving, makes them more worthy. I think that's terrible. That's completely missing the point. I'm not a feminist because it's cool. I don't even see how speaking for those who are marginalised, how speaking for the silenced is a cool thing. Jesus did it. It didn't work out really well for him. And I hope it works out a bit better for me, to be honest. But yeah, really great question. Thank you very much. So how would you respond to feminists out there that might find it contradictory or counterproductive to have a man fighting in their corner, so to speak? Ooh, great question. And honestly, I don't think I'm somebody who can answer that. Uh, the best thing I can say is the old joke. If a man speaks in the woods and no woman hears him, is he still wrong? No, my, both my wife and my mother would say, yes, definitely, men shouldn't be allowed to speak. And yeah, I agree with them to a point. 
I'm not the right person to ask. I do speak on a number of issues of inclusion. I have to speak from what I believe. I've been given the privilege of a podium and I have to say what I earnestly think when the Bible and what Jesus is saying to us to this society today. I can only do my little bit and I hope that whoever hears it will take it in my limited capacity, my limited understanding in turning that around and trying to make a difference. We took a move at church about five years ago now. Obviously churches have visiting speakers in and for five years I have never asked or never invited or never allowed a man to speak from my pulpit. It's always been women. And somebody said to me one day, they said, well surely that's not anything to do with equality and I said well no because I only get five or six visits a year which means 46 times out of a year it's me in the pulpit and there's a man leading the church and I want my church to see that it doesn't always have to be men and if I split it 50-50 that means we get fewer women speak. I'm trying to do my little bit in whatever way I can. I'm trying to let the unheard voices be heard. Am I doing enough? Probably not, but I'm doing what I can and I hope that whoever hears this will accept that and say, well, bless him, he is trying, he could try harder, he could do better. Please come and talk to me. Tell me what I can do better. I'm always open for for criticism. You seem to focus on issues that affect marginalised groups. In your blog, It's Not My Story To Tell, you talk about privilege and about how some people feel that you, as a privileged person, i.e. a white, middle-class, cis male, they might think that you have no right to be talking about such issues. How does that viewpoint make you feel and do you consider yourself an activist for these groups? Speaking to the margins, that was Jesus's big thing. One of the ways which I think we've really lost sight of Jesus' message is how we portray him. You're so familiar with seeing the white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyes Jesus that we forget to open the Bibles and actually take a look at what it says about him. And yes, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. He wouldn't have been blue-eyed at all. He wouldn't have had blonde hair or white skin. He would have been very ruddy, very dark in complexion. He would have looked an awful lot like a gentleman today from the Middle East with the more tanned skin, very dark, knotted hair. And I think, I haven't got an issue with people making Jesus like us. Jesus is there to be relatable to. But if we look at Jesus today, he would be marginalised in our society. But it goes beyond that. Jesus was the illegitimate son of a teenage mother. He was born at the time of ethnic cleansing in his region where his family had to flee. They were they were a refugee family. We are talking here about the story of a Middle Eastern refugee. These people exist today and they are still marginalised. The entire message of Jesus is one to the marginalised. One of my favourite passages is when Jesus brings a bunch of people together and he says, I don't know you because you didn't come to see me when I was in prison. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I was poor. And they turn to him and they say, look, if we knew you were in prison, we'd have come. If, if we'd ever seen you hungry, you've always got a place at our table. And Jesus says, you know what? As you do to the least, that's what you do to me. You only treat me as well as you treat the lowest members of your society. And that is so powerful because when you see church today, when you see the splendour, when you see how wealthy some of these churches are and they aren't using it for the poor, they aren't using it to speak out against systemic governmental corruption which keeps people in poverty because it serves their narrative, that really hurts me. I'm not saying the churches aren't doing great things. The food bank service is amazing and I've I've got to take my hat off to them. We've got organisations like Christians Against Poverty and the church doesn't 
awful lot of good in small ways. What does rile me up is the church isn't rallying together to hit on the doors of government to say a lot of your laws are unjust. One example of this, maybe I'm going for the low-hanging fruit here. The Prime Minister, when we deported the Windrush generation, is the daughter of a minister. And that really upset me. I'm thinking, you supposedly follow a dark-skinned immigrant refugee family, and yet you want to you want to throw these dark-skinned immigrant refugees out of our country. No, they belong here. They were born here, some of them. It's their birthright to be here. That's where I find church really doesn't speak to the margins. Church should only be there for the margins. This is the God we follow. Out of everybody God could have chosen to, to come to earth as, he chose Jesus, the poor son of a poor carpenter, in the back end of nowhere. In the Christmas narratives, the wise men assume that this future king is going to be born in a palace, in a place of privilege, and they find him in a cattle shed. That, to me, says this is the central message of Jesus. This isn't just a Jesus message. This is throughout the Bible. We've got this wonderful phrase called, you cows of Bashan, which is where one of the prophets likens the wealthy. See those fat cows over there on that field? That's you, that is. And sometimes the gloves come off. Paul, in his letter again to Corinth, we always come back to the letter to Corinth because it's, it's one of the big ones, he chides the church because they gather and they, sh- they, sh- they break bread, they share a meal together, but they do it while the poor are still at work so they can't be fed. The poor were the marginalised of their day. Today, yes, we still have poverty. Yes, I'm not denying that. But we need to extend that and we need to say, look, who is marginalised? Whose voice isn't being heard? I don't see any way of being a Christian and not speaking for the marginalised. Am I doing this from a position of privilege? Yes, I'm painfully aware of my own privilege. And in so many ways, I find the word privilege a very helpful but a very unhelpful tool. So a lot of people would say, I'm not privileged. I come from a council house in Trialo. There's nothing wrong with coming from a council house in Trialo. And I'm white, which gives me certain privileges. I can walk down the street without fear of abuse because of it, which a lot of a lot of people who are not white can't do yet. I'm male, which means I am far less likely to feel intimidated, to feel that threat of violence, which I didn't fully understand. It was I remember once I'm going back to my university days. I went as a mature student. Most theology students are mature students. And you know what it's like? You're in a mixed class and everybody's there. And we had some regular university students there too. And we'd gone to the pub one night. And two other girls, lovely girls, they were saying, oh, can I stay at your house tonight? One said to the other one, can I stay at your house tonight? I said, what's wrong with you guys? They said, oh, it's two streets away. I don't want to walk that in the dark. And it wasn't until I saw the look in their, in their eyes that I realised, yeah, I've never, ever been afraid to walk down a street on my own in the dark because I'm not likely to get this threat of violence. They are. And, and until you realise these little things, you don't realise how privileged you are. I was, I was blessed. I was blessed beyond the other day. One of the guys that works in a coffee shop I attend, which obviously is on shutdown at the moment, lovely fella. I asked him one day, I said, look, do you and your boyfriend ever get grief when you go out and you sit in a coffee shop like this? And he said, no, we don't. He said, only once has anybody come up to me and ever made a lewd remark. And I'm like, that blessed me so much because I've spoken to so many people in the LGBT community and even today they still get abuse they still get words said about them when they're out with their partners it's such a privilege that I can hold my wife's hand as we walk down the street if one of us has to get on the train I can give her a kiss goodbye without any looks without anything being said and that is a privilege can I use my privilege to speak for others I can't tell their story 
that isn't my story to tell. Here's the thing with privilege and power. Whether I want to or not, I have a position of power. I have a message to bring people. I get invited to other places to speak. People listen to me. I can use this power for good or I can use this power to lay in my own pockets. I would much, much rather use this power, use this podium that I've been given to say, you know what? God loves everyone. Jesus loves everyone. We are all one people. Get over yourself. Accept those who are different to you. I'm not trying to tell anybody's story. I'm not trying to tell your story. I'm not trying to tell the story of those two girls who were afraid to walk home on their own. All I can do is use the podium that I've been given. And yes, I know that's from my privilege. But all I can do is use that to say to people, this is what other people's stories are. You haven't listened to them, but you do listen to me. And hopefully in some small way, that'll make a little small difference. You've said yourself when you came to my church, you had a great welcome. I was so chuffed when you said that. Honestly, Clary, I had a tear in my eye when you said that because it took us a while to get there. Church is predominantly an older generation. They don't really understand stuff. I remember once a friend of mine came and she spoke at my church. She is bisexual, but at the time, she wasn't convinced that she wasn't a lesbian. She thought she was a lesbian. She was a little bit intimidated to come in because, of course, the ladies at my church are much older, the gents are much older. They don't always understand it. Once they met her, they absolutely loved her. She Darling, I love it a bit. It's not an issue once you know the person. Once their story and your stories become intertwined, you can love anybody. I think what's happened is we've had this fear of the other for so long. I get it. I understand what it's like to work through fear, to work through prejudices, with love, with time, with compassion, with understanding. We can get through all of these differences. This is what I hope I'm doing when I speak from the margins or I speak for the margins. I'm not one of these big, high up, important people in church. I've got a tiny little chapel, but it's making these little moves that in my small community, I can make a change for the good. And hopefully people will allow me to continue doing that. You very kindly offered Forget Me Not Productions use of your church over the years on numerous occasions. We've run rehearsals there, charity events, as a thank you, I played guitar for your Maundy Thursday service last year. Now, I'll be honest, I was torn. As a member of the LGBTQ plus community and someone that does not consider themselves at all religious, well, it could have been potentially awkward. But I must say, I found your sermon on the day forward-thinking, inclusive and very relevant in today's climate. I've since read your blog entitled The Gay Bible Question. And again, I found it a really fascinating read. How important is it for you to shine a different light on areas of the Bible that might have potentially been misinterpreted for centuries, particularly in reference to the treatment, or rather mistreatment, of marginalised groups? Thank you so much for saying that. We were blessed. We were really blessed that you studied and did it. You were absolutely amazing. And now I take my hat off to you, Clara. Honestly, that was, that was amazing. And thank you for saying that it was a nice welcome. We've worked really hard at that, not just towards the LGB community, obviously, but in general. And, and that's, you really blessed me that. So let's get on to the dreaded gaze on the Bible question, which I get asked so many times. That's the thing that I've written about the most on my blog. It's the question I get asked probably more than anything else. How can you be a Christian? How can you believe in the Bible and not hate gays? Well, first of all, I don't think the Bible tells us to hate. The Bible is quite clear on that. Love God, love your neighbour. And you are my neighbour. Jesus goes to great pains to point out that the Samaritans, the most hated group of people according to Israel at that time, were their neighbours and they were to love them. And more than just to love them, to see the good that they bring into the world. And I know this 
this to me starts to get a little bit uneasy because it starts to throw up these us and them barriers. I don't see an us and them. I really don't. We are all one people. We are all one flesh. And more than that, the Bible says that God became flesh. And this is so important. When we acknowledge the God in the other, that's when we can really start to move on. But it's it's a huge question because a lot of people get bamboozled over it. Honestly, I don't think the Bible is as anti-LGB plus that people make it out to be. I'm not going to say it's positive. I'm not going to say that it's it's wholly inclusive. I will say it's not as anti as people try to make it out. One of the great figures, King David, he had a very special relationship with Jonathan. And we've sort of skirted around this issue in the church a lot. There's one line in particular which David reads after Jonathan's demise. Spoilers, we're only going back to a story here in the late Bronze Age. But after Jonathan's demise, David gives this amazing eulogy in which he, he, he describes Jonathan's love as being that of better than any woman. When you read passages like that, and there's a number of passages about the great love they shared between each other, you start to think, well, I know David had wives and David had concubines, but he had this very, very special male-male relationship. And the Bible isn't as negative as we think. A lot of people like to quote Leviticus to say that a man should not sleep with another man as with a woman. What I find really fascinating with that one, first of all, um, Leviticus is laid out in a particular way dealing with certain wrongdoings or sins, they call them, or certain in anti-societal norms. They do include sexual sins, which would include sleeping with your mother-in-law, sleeping with your sister, and sleeping with a goat. Now, I don't know what the ancient world was like that they thought, right, we need a law against sleeping with goats. The laws which have been construed as anti-homosexual don't appear in the list of sexual laws. They appear in a list of purity laws to do with foreign worships. That's your first red flag. It, it's never listed as a sexual impurity. It's a ritualistic impurity, which, okay, you could argue with splitting hairs there. I would turn that around and I would say, actually, that's quite a pro-feminist movement because women didn't have an awful lot of rights in the ancient world. One right they did have was the right to procreate once they were married. I'm trying to put this really delicately here so as not to offend any of your more sensitive listeners, but basically women were given a nookie allowance where men were supposed to join them in their bedroom, which was theirs. This was one of the very few spaces a woman was allowed in the ancient world. A man wasn't allowed to move another man into that space. He wasn't allowed to use a man at the times that he was allocated to lay with his wife because this was one of the very very few privileges she had so i see this as sort of redressing that because let's be honest homosexuality has been going on since the dawn of time when we read the greek epics they're wonderful achilles the greatest warrior in greek time had a male lover in patroclus we know he was married as well to briseus but his love for patroclus is what people write about this is what he's famous for so we know it's always gone on when I read Leviticus, this is what I see being outlined here, is it's not saying, look, you cannot sleep with a man, but you cannot sleep with a man. And if we go into the Hebrew of it, what it says is, in a woman's bed, which is what gives it that huge grey area for some people. For me, it's not a grey area at all. It's saying, look, women have always had some rights. You have to respect those. I don't see it as, a, as an outright block on homosexuality. We come into the New Testament and then we come to the letters of Paul. And oh dear me, I so wish Paul worked with a copy editor, someone to say, okay, do you just want to explain what you mean there? The reason this is so significant is, of course, you get that big clobber passage about what we've translated as effeminate 
and homosexuals. In Greek, you've got the words malakai and arsenkaitai, which nowhere else in Greek are these words ever translated as homosexual. They had their own word for homosexual, and they didn't choose these ones. And Paul doesn't choose to use the common word for homosexual. Instead, he uses this sort of truncation of arson and koitai, which means man and bear or man and sex. And he just assumes that people would know what he's talking about. The other thing which complicates that is in his letter to Corinth. Corinth, maybe it's been maligned as this city of deprivation. We know it was a coastal town. We know there was an awful lot of sailors there. But we also know it was typically Romano-Greek. So yes, there was an awful lot of odd activity of sailors coming ashore, looking for a night of fleeting satisfaction, as it were. And we think it might have something to do with that. The most recent studies into this word, we think it's to do with pediastry, which is where where older Roman or Greek man would take a young boy under his wing and nurture him, and I'm putting that in commas, because he would have to induce him in many, many things, including sexuality. It was a common enough thing in the ancient world, and we think that what we are seeing here in Paul's writings is him saying, look, we don't want this. We don't want this to be forced on anybody. And this is what I think he's saying in the book of Romans, which is where so far it's only addressed male sexuality. Romans is one of the few places which addresses female sexuality, where it says about giving yourself to unnatural relationships. And again, the connotations there seems to be if it's forced, if it's coerced. And we've just bent this so out of proportion and we've made it say things that it doesn't say. For years from the King James Bible in the 17th century this word arsenkaitai was translated to be sodomist and when we look back in our Bibles the sin of sodomy was they were unwelcoming to the stranger. They were unwelcoming to the other, the people who weren't like them. I find it so amazing that these people were struck down for not being welcoming to people who weren't like them. And yet this is one of those clobber passages to say, well, you're not like us, so we're going to strike you down. Irony is completely lost on some people. But it's even bigger than that. Yeah, we can argue semantics, we can argue words. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Old Testament, a eunuch is not allowed to enter the temple. A eunuch is not allowed to enter a place of worship. And then comes Jesus, and Jesus is this wonderful, radical preacher who is just out there preaching this message of complete forgiveness, complete love, complete acceptance. And he gives this talk about eunuchs. And it's wonderful. And he says how some men choose to be eunuchs, some men are forced to be eunuchs, but some men, they are just born this way. And I love it. Jesus is quoting Lady Gaga. And Jesus just, to, to be fair, I know Jesus came first, but Lady Gaga might have said it better. But Jesus is saying some men were just born this way. And the reason the eunuchs were so highly prized in the ancient world, the rulers could leave them in their harems. They could leave them with their concubines knowing that they wouldn't be having their wicked way with them. And Jesus is saying, but you know what? Some men just choose not to. And I love this because it leaves the door wide open because is Jesus saying, yeah, the reason these men are not attracted to women is because they are homosexual. Or is Jesus saying, the reason these men are attracted to women is they are asexual or grey sexual or anywhere on the spectrum. And I just love that Jesus leaves us with this amazing, amazing verse. And what, what really stuns me is there's a great story right after the death and resurrection, which is what we celebrate this time of year in Easter time, where one of the first people to join the church is a eunuch. And I love this because for hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been told, you have no place here. You are dirty. You are different. 
You cannot do what a man is supposed to do, therefore we do not want you. And one of the first people that enters the church and is welcome into the church, I don't mean the building, I mean the, the body of believers, is a eunuch. And it's almost like Jesus actually meant what he said when he said, some people are just born this way. And what an amazing, amazing message from about 2,000 years ago, which we've completely missed out on. You also discuss suicide and mental health issues within the ministry and, and the loneliness that your calling sometimes brings. If you could go back now and speak to Pastor Steve at his lowest point, what advice would you give yourself? Mental health is a absolutely massive topic. Church has always dealt with mental health in possibly the worst way. It's one of those just pray it away, just just, just pray and let God heal you. Folks, God has given us amazing tools and amazing resources and amazing avenues of study and medicine and psychology and psychiatry. I really wish churches would take hold of that and that's why I wrote the blog I did on mental health. People suffer anyway. I hate it when church and God is used as an excuse to extend that suffering. For some reason, people have this idea that, oh, you suffer with mental illness. That must be some form of weakness. That is absolute rubbish we're all messed up in one way or other we're all messed up we all need somebody to come alongside us to sit with us to listen this isn't to say i don't believe god can sort things out i believe god can sort things out and i believe that sometimes god sends people our way to give us that little nudge to give us that help that we need i hate seeing the hurt in people's lives i've been so privileged to sit with so many people who have literally poured their heart out to me i'm not a counselor I'm a pastor, I'm a minister, I deal with the spiritual, I try to get people on a good spiritual track. And I know that very often if people are facing mental anguish, I just can't do my job. In the Bible we've got this idea of the spirit being the white dove. You don't see a white dove landing on a busy train platform. They tend to dwell in quieter places. So I would love people who need mental health help to go and get it. I've needed it myself. We live in incredibly, incredibly strange times. I know I've read books on the rise of neoliberalism, how capitalism gone wild, has gone rampant, and it's diminished us as people. We have just become products. We've become tools for the rich to make money. It does dehumanize us. If you listen to me talk an awful lot, I'll say about the enforced infantilization of adults, which means we aren't given the rights to choose. We aren't given the rights to make adult decisions anymore. And that does affect the psyche. I think it's important that all people are aware of their surroundings. I'm incredibly grateful for the help I've received. It's no weakness at all to say that we need help. I want people to get over that stigma. I want people to take mental health seriously. If you need medication, take medication. If you need people to speak to, you need people to speak to. A good friend of mine, we were in school together, so we've known each other. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm all of 25 now. I'm a bit older than that. And she's a mental health nurse. And we were chatting one day and I said, so what exactly do you do? And she turns to me and she said, my job now is what your job was 10 years ago. People would go and speak to their minister because we have certain listening skills, those of us who've bothered to be trained. We have certain listening skills and we are people who will love you and listen to you unconditionally and without judgment. This is, this is my job. A lot of people I speak to who are working in the mental health sector, they say very often they just have to act as paid friends. Because we find intimacy, we find vulnerability so difficult with people we know. And we didn't used to. We used to have these group of friends around us who loved us and supported us. And that seems to have gone. 
this is kind of the essence of what church should be. I almost say this is what church is, but I know I know from so many people's personal experiences that isn't true. This is what we should be. No man is an island in and of himself, and that's completely true. We need to come together. We need to learn what it means to love without prejudice and to listen without judging. Thanks. And finally, Steve, Star Trek and the Church care to elaborate on that yeah star trek this is an interesting story i love stories and this is actually what this is all about um one of the things i had to study at university was ancient near eastern parallels which is a really fancy word for saying look you know all those stories you were taught in classics class about the greek gods but the egyptian gods about the uh, mesopotamian gods and this that and the other and they all have similar themes and if i was going to be really pedantic these are called myth themes we still have them today there's no new story under the sun stories tell us something obviously we tell stories but stories tell us something and i've always believed this that all stories are true and people get up to you when i say that and i tell them look what about the story of the boy who cried wolf is it a true story and they say no and i say okay so what's the story about and we start to unpack it and it's about when you tell an awful lot of lies people don't believe you when you are telling the truth and i said right so the story of the boy who cried wolf is a true story depending on how you think about it the other thing that came through to me that's my love for stories I, I i do love stories the other thing that came through to me is reading a lot of these ancient world writings uh, reading the greek writings reading the egyptian writings they were writing about stuff which they didn't know but they hoped and i love that and to me the great modern equivalent we have is star trek now star trek was a cultural phenomenon and it shaped so much we're talking about the first interracial on-screen kiss which was revolutionary in the 60s we are talking here about a show which on its pilot the first officer was a woman and the studio said look you can't have a woman first officer women will never reach that high up in any organization and it's like yeah right but look sci-fi deals with the unknown that to me gives me a lot of comfort that we're still asking these great questions a passion of mine i I wanted to do this so many times on my laptop i've got so many first drafts of this I just want to write a blog or a website or, or something. I, I don't want to say I want to write a book because books are massively hard work. Star Trek tells us stories which are as old as time, but they tell them in a way which we sometimes laugh at because of the campiness, because of the really, really poor acting and the poor backgrounds in it, which just puts a smile on my face. But they deal with these massive stories of the unknown. And what I love about it is they are so full of hope. These are stories where the good guys always win in the end. Even if it isn't really bad, the good guys win. And that just really, really puts a smile on my face. One day, hopefully I'll get around to writing about it. There's nothing new under the sun. A lot of the stories in Star Trek I can relate back to to Greek, to Mesopotamian, to Egyptian writings. And obviously a lot of writings of the Bible prop up there. But Star Trek to me epitomises the rich tapestry of storytelling that is everybody's life and each and every one of us is a thread in this we each have our stories and our stories intertwine with others and this is what the world is and i think really this is what i've been trying to say about throughout this whole interview we need to listen to the unheard stories sometimes we get these huge cultural explosions like star trek was everybody knows about it everybody knows about mr spark and 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 scotty and whatnot But we can use these. This is a common ground where we can discuss ideas. And I absolutely love that. And let's have more voices in it. Let's listen to more diversity. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been great. Thank you very, very much for having me on. It's been an absolute privilege. And 
every Easter blessing to you. God bless. Join us next time when we interview Japanese comedian Yuriko Katani. Thank you very much for having me. 